Good evening. This is Cinema 60. I thought you had a little more style than to try an old trick like that. I don't know what you mean. Well, money clip, I'm surprised at you. It is also a bomb. Really? Really. Really? Really. Hey, Bart. Funny to bump into you in this tailor's shop. I'm just trying to get some shirts pressed. Or are we? Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> That's right. It's another bootleg Bond episode. We are talking today about one of my faves and one of the faves of the decade, The Man from Uncle, which I love. I used to love it. I... <laughs> it, was, it was when I was a kid, it was a great TV show. Have you watched the show as an adult? No. But no, these movies aside, we'll we'll get to the the point of this episode. This is a movie episode still, but uh no, I don't think I'd seen it at all since I was I was a youngster. How young are we talking? I don't know. I mean, in seven or eight, something like that. Oh, like really young. Yeah. What was it, like repeats on TV? Yeah. Yeah, all the great shows. Hogan's Heroes, Wild Wild West, Mission Impossible. All right. Loved them all. I don't know if any of them would hold up now, though. Although Hogan's Heroes actually surprisingly does hold up. Never seen it. Yeah. I, I guess it's uh, it's it's problematic. But uh, it's it's great. Man from Uncle, on the other hand, I'm not. I'm not sure it holds up. Well, I'm gonna call bullshit because I got into Man from Uncle when I was like 28 or something, uh, and I started watching it uh, obsessively. It was like my favorite. It was like the only thing I wanted to watch TV wise. And granted, I'm not that much of a TV watcher, and I don't really. I'm not a binger, so like I'm these episodes. Like you know, they're an hour long. And each season is like 20 somewhat, 23 episodes a season. So there, it's an insane amount of television. I never actually even got through the whole series because it was like I was watching like one a week or maybe even one a day at, at most. So I, I never really fully made it. I, I ended up burning out after a while. But it wasn't because I didn't like it. It was just more like I needed a change of pace. Well, and also these uh, these old, these 60s shows, they uh, returns to status quo at the end of every episode so it doesn't matter what order you see them nothing builds on anything else so binging doesn't really make much sense the way it does with these more serialized shows everything's a soap opera now that's true but with man from uncle there is some changes that are kind of interesting to watch happen so like the show premiered on nbc in 1964 and it lasted through 1968 and it really only like exploded in popularity by its second season it gets increasingly campier as it goes along, and then it gets, like, dead serious, and then it gets canceled. <laughs> <laughs> so there is, like, a bit of an arc as far as just what you're watching, but these aren't episodes that are made to be binged particularly. You know, they're really made to be watched once a week, and, and when you sort of give it enough room, they're really fun. I really en I, I enjoy them. And, this, and watching all these movies made me just want to go back and watch the all the episodes of the TV show I missed. Yeah, Jenna, this is Cinema 60. Why are we talking about a TV show? <laughs> well, thanks for asking, Bart. You see, 
They, so I didn't even know this, is that they made these movies out of episodes of Man from U.N.C.L.E. and then they released them. And I think that it was mostly for international audiences. From my research, I found that it was just the first couple of movies that got uh, that got American releases. They One big reason that uh, they were a success in the States was that people were watching these episodes in black and white on TV and they could go to the theater and see them in color. So that was exciting. It was actually the first four that were shown theatrical in the U.S. The There were eight altogether, and the uh, the last four were n- never shown theatrically in the U.S. at all. Mostly they were, as you were saying, made for international release. They're for you know, England and, and European countries who were not getting the show in syndication. So these movies were their, the only way they could see the adventures of, uh, of Napoleon Solo and Ilya Kuryakin. England eventually started showing the episodes, but up until that point, the only way for British people to see the show, which they loved, was to see these movies theatrically. Well, it's not surprising that they loved it because... Just to give some background on how the show started, it was pitched as basically Bond for TV. And it was initially co-created with the help of Ian Fleming, who ended up bowing out pretty early on in the process. Like he was sort of there for basically coming up with really like the conceptual aspects of, of a show like this. And I think he named Napoleon Solo. Yeah, that was about the extent of his contributions, as far as I could tell. And he... I think it was his idea to have, you know, an innocent in every episode, sort of an audience stand in so that, you know, we have somebody to relate to. Some innocent bystander who gets dragged into these these spy adventures and whose lives are endangered. But Napoleon and Elia always manage to keep them alive somehow. Napoleon, the name Napoleon Solo and the the, uh, the innocent aspect, I, I don't think Ian Fleming contributed a whole lot to this other than creating James Bond, which caused a sensation in the movie adaptations and the U.S. had to rip it off for TV. Somebody was going to do it. Yeah. The legend goes that they sort of had come in to pitch something else, another television series, and ended up on the spot coming up with a really vague idea of a spy show (laughs) and ended up having to flesh it out when the network was actually more intrigued by that than their original pitch. So, yeah, that was definitely... it, It started off as really being... Just let's let's make a bootleg Bond for television. But I think it ended up really, it became its own thing in a lot of ways. But before it even got to that point, right when they were in the process of developing it, they uh, had to deal with actually almost getting sued several times over it being a little too much like Bond. Like initially they wanted to call the show Solo for Napoleon Solo. And that was, of course, you know, like Bond. So they, they had to change that to this man from uncle, which apparently everyone hated, (laughs) (laughs) which is not surprising. And then even more amusing was how they thought that because the bad guys in man from uncle are called thrush, Mm -hmm. (laughs) which is about as bad as uncle for as an acronym, but they thought that sounded too much like smirsh. So there was like this tense standoff where, uh, and initially in the pilot, they called them, wasp 
But then the network was like, oh, no, we, we don't want to offend white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. <laughs> was that the reason they changed that? Because Wasp is definitely a better name than Thrush. Yep, they were afraid. They, the network was like, we got to change this. It's going to be too offensive to say that they're the evil empire. So so it was back to Thrush, which I think is just, I don't know, it's about as dumb as Smirsh. You know, I Thrush, it just makes me think of like a yeast infection. <laughs> Do you have the... Uh what the acronym stands for handy bart i absolutely do and let me tell you you never learn in the show what thrush stands for but apparently it stands for the technological hierarchy of the removal of undesirables and the subjugation of humanity wow (laughs) (laughs) and uncle stands for united network command for law enforcement which also was a total hindsight like uh this is what it stands for kind of name because i'm i'm pretty positive that they ended up naming it uncle because they were thinking well you know we want something that's international let's call let's start with un and then couldn't figure out what else what other words what other letters to put after un that didn't (laughs) well yeah and every time they show up in new york at the uh, at the uncle headquarters you see a picture of the united nations building so obviously they were trying to make you think that this is a UN agency. Well, that was later on. Like they didn't initially bring the UN into it, though. They it was very clear. It's like heavily implied because when you walk into Uncle Headquarters, which is initially you know the secret entrances in the back of a tailor shop, and you go through these like big metal corridors, and uh, everyone's international. So it, that's kind of a cool aspect of it. It has that kind of that Star Trek way of everyone's from a different part of the world and they're all working together in this big you know crime stopping organization so yeah i think it just inevitably everyone watching was like oh the un <laughs> yeah i i think right from the beginning the the movies sh- at least show you pictures of the un building so at least to the international audiences seeing these films they had to have been associating it with the un for sure i guess the un was still pretty new and cool by the 60s it's a very 60s looking building so even if uh you didn't know that was the un building it it gives a the appropriate atmosphere to this show for sure and yeah i mean so so man from uncle went on to become this total phenomenon like we're talking huge like on par with with beatlemania for this show and it's so it's so weird to think about but it's also it I think it makes sense I was trying to come up with like a contemporary thing that I could compare man from uncle to and in thinking about how man from uncle basically was offering people a fantasy world uh the only way I can describe it is by comparing it to Harry Potter as its modern equivalent it was all about this underground spy world that was like playing out in parallel to normal life, you know? So like Napoleon's putting his life on the line so you can be blissfully unaware and enjoying your yo-yo or whatever, you know? So, so Mm -hmm. it was like this idea that, that there's some secret world within the world that we already exist in, which I think was a little, you know, is already a, a more personal kind of fantasy to come up with and get people hooked And then it took it one step further, which is like you were talking about with The Innocent, because all these episodes were structured around this sort of Alice in Wonderland formula where our two main spies recruit somebody who's super normal 
off the street to help them. Muggle. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then they plunge this person into a world of guns and gadgets and, you know, let them get in on the action, actually, without not just standing around and being saved. A lot of the times they would even be the person that saves Napoleon or Ilya. It, what's even cooler about that is a lot of these characters were women. So instead of the, like Bond, you know, which is a world where women are only killer sex pots that you like screw and then kill. <laughs> If you don't even leave them, you have to kill them after you've had sex with them. Uh, now women could be, you know, in, in Man from Uncle, women are like nice half the time. They're usually like the good girl who um, manages to save the day and doesn't get sexually harassed. <laughs> yeah, although it's it's pretty uh, even handed in terms of having female villains. It seems like every every one of these movies we watched anyway, it brought in there was. There's always the the innocent woman who's uh, you know the the audience stand in, but then there's also the the villainess who uh, is is really pulling the strings, which I guess in its own way is sort of brings in female viewership as well. I mean, women are evil. We know this, <laughs> but no, yeah. And so, Man from Uncle was so popular in general, but it was super popular with the ladies for that reason. Like my mom and my uncle growing up were huge fans of this show. And my mom even had a story about going to Macy's to go see David McCallum, who plays Ilya, to because uh, he, he was doing in-person appearances around the country. And the event ended up getting canceled on the spot because there were so many teenagers mobbing the place like you could like a crush of crowd like you couldn't move that they had to cancel it because they didn't even and they didn't even let them come out like it, it wasn't even everybody had everyone there and then they were like yeah never mind we're not doing this because it was just like full-on Beatlemania situation and they didn't want teenagers to like destroy the place <laughs> if he came out um so yeah I mean and this was happening alongside Beatlemania too I mean this is exactly that time and and in the same way it was a lot about catering to teenagers and and this sort of female gaze uh in hysteria i mean they merchandised the hell out of this <laughs> there were dolls and and toys and you know gadgets you could join uncle if you wrote in and the people were writing to the fbi and they were like how do i join uncle and people were taking tours of the un and asking where the headquarters was and all this sort of stuff so do they send you a, a triangle with a number on it yeah, I think they sent you a card that said, like, destroy if you feel nervous. <laughs> <laughs> One cool fact uh, that I read in this essay about Man from Uncle in a book called Television, Social Media, and Fan Culture, and uh, this, this essay was by uh, Cynthia W. Walker, which was a really great article, actually, because it was cool to see it get compared to our social media age, but... Um, she has down that 73% of the fandom was female and 42% of the male fans favored Napoleon while 73% of the female fans favored Ilya, which it doesn't surprise me either. And you're an Ilya girl, right, Bart? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Napoleon solo is useless. At least, at least Ilya Kuryakin knows how to you know, fly helicopters and stuff. Like they're both, they're so, they're such bumbling spies. They're terrible at their jobs. They just like <laughs> charge into a situation with their, with their guns in their hands, having no idea what they're going to do. And somehow they manage, I mean, they always get captured once or twice, but you know, this being a bond ripoff, the, the villain never kills them. You know, they have to be witnesses to whatever 
you know, evil scheme. Like that's, I don't want, I'll, I'm sure I won't be able to stop myself at some point uh, during this episode going off on, on that, on that trope, but I hate it. It makes no sense. Why can't villains just learn to kill these super spies immediately? It's terrible. It's why I hate these movies so much. But anyway, yeah, Ilya, I, I, I like a lot more than Napoleon just because he seems so bored all the time. Like he never cracks a smile. It, it really kind of feels like David McCallum doesn't even want to be there, which is <laughs> how I kind of feel when I'm watching these movies that I don't really want to be here. So I, I relate. Well, I think I, I'm with you. I think Ilya is a cool dude. Um, and I think he's a cool guy because of the fact that he really isn't your traditional leading man, which is also exciting in a Bond series. So to me, this is all positive things and not cranky things. But <laughs> Well, let me while we're on it, let me just ask you why, why they named the hero Napoleon Solo when the only thing that differentiates him from James Bond is that he's got a partner. Go ask Han Solo about that. I don't know. What, what, well, at least, well, why I guess he's got. Laro he's got. When you ain't really from Laro or wherever in Italy. I'm not a fictional <laughs> character. <laughs> well, neither is Napoleon. He is real, okay? Yeah. Um, Ilya, let's talk. Well, you know, we didn't even mention really who these guys are. So, Napoleon Solo is. Is he meant to be Canadian? I didn't even know that until I started reading up on it. I think he might meant to. He might be Canadian, but in my mind, he's the American there's, spy. There's something very mid-Atlantic about uh, Robert Vaughn's voice, his accent. Well, he's from New York. Right, and he's very, like, he's a he's a big liberal political activist guy, so he's he's super American, but his he's got, he's got this sort of not quite American accent that it was probably learned in acting school trying to get rid of his his queen's accent or something. Well, that's what I did. <laughs> if he's Canadian, I had no idea. No, okay. So the original concept he was going to be Canadian and then they were like screw that. All USA. So mm -hmm. he's American uh and his whole thing is that he is the Bond stand-in, but instead of, you know, he's the kind of he's he's the attractive playboy, but he's meant to be the character is really meant to be more of a like really hyper smart but normal enough looking that he doesn't stand out in a crowd kind of character which Robert Vaughn really yeah, is <laughs> he's not he's always dressed nice and his hair is perfect but he's not you know yeah, particularly not like, attractive he looks like a guy he's fine but he's charming and so like there is there is a charm to him and instead of like you know bond he he's a flirt but he isn't like flippant you know, like I think, and that, that to me is like it's like the Robert Vaughnness. Like he easily could have been as terrible as Bond of, as a character, but he has more self awareness, and you know, he's he's charming. He's not rapey. <laughs> yeah, he's. I mean, he definitely um, doesn't treat his uh, romantic partners with enough respect, but at least he's not a sexual predator like James Bond. Yeah, his whole thing is that he's a workaholic and can't hold down a relationship is sort of where they take that as opposed to that. He's a the slut, <laughs> which he is too. Yeah. Um, whereas like, yeah, Ilya is the, he's the Russian spy. So that's also already playing into the cold war dynamic, which I think was also pretty fun for people 
to get in on and, and consider the idea of one day when, you know, Russians and Americans can be friends again, which you see also in Star Trek. And you see you see in a lot of shows and movies during this time. And Ilya, he's super, you know, he's played by David McCallum, who's Scottish, but uh, I think does a de- decent job at being Russian. He gets the accent down pretty okay. And when he veers into a sort of British accent, it also makes more sense. You just presume he learned English in the UK. But well, his his thing is that he has like a Beatles haircut, <laughs> which was like a big, like he became a sex symbol, which is really hilarious to me, because if you just Google him, <laughs> I think he's really weird looking. You know, like he he has some moments later on when these movies go on and his hair gets like actually Beatles long length. He looks a little more attractive to me, but (laughs) I think he's a very like, you know, Scottish looking dude. Like he's he's fine, but he's just I don't know why he became such a sex symbol other than the fact that he just was, as you mentioned, this sort of like shy, you know, weird kind of thoughtful, quiet guy You know, and they set him up to be this, like, evil Russian spy, but then he, like, ends up being more of a dork who just, like, doesn't know how to communicate. And it's a breath of fresh air in comparison to Bond, certainly. Yeah. The two leads are are likable enough. I think that's what, you know, kind of kept me going with these movies. You know, let's see what Napoleon and Ilya get up to next. Well, they have a good, I think they have a really good chemistry and that it comes across way more in the show as you're watching these episodes because Ilya wasn't initially meant to be a starring co-lead. He was just a supporting character, but he ended up gaining more, more screen time. So it's kind of fun to watch the show and see basically their, the two characters' friendship growing in real time because that's kind of what they imply is that the reason that why they get teamed up all the time is because they like each other. So it's actually really nice. It's like a, it's a, it's a fun dynamic. And, you know, when one of them is in trouble, the other one genuinely is concerned and things like that. So it, yeah, they're, they're, they make a, for a cute pair. And whenever anything particularly dangerous needs to be done, it's always Ilya who, who goes and does it. Like he knows. He's always being tortured. (laughs) (laughs) And Napoleon is cool with that. He's like, oh, Ilya will take care of this. And uh, yeah, and and I don't know what else. Ayn Rand hated this series, so if that's not a double thumbs up recommendation, I don't, I don't know what else is. <laughs> Let's just jump into these movies. Part of why I thought this would be an interesting subject for a Cinema Sixty episode is it sometimes happened that that popular TV shows would get edited into movie length films and shown in theaters. Disney did it with their shows in the 50s like Zorro and Davy Crockett and I know the adventures of Superman uh, it happened with too and you know some of these more expensive shows with higher production values which is kind of hilarious to say if because if you look at these Man from Uncle movies that we watch the production values are incredibly low but they, you know, they make for passable movies. There there were a few shows where they did re-edit them into movies because they they thought that they could get people to come out to the drive-in and see these episodes that they already watched on TV for a second time. So it's it wasn't widespread, but it did happen often enough that uh, I, I thought it would be interesting to have an example of that phenomenon on Cinema 60. It, uh, it definitely was more common in the 50s when TV was still taking over 
you know, destroying cinema. You know, they, everybody was just staying home and watching TV, and it was a way. One strategy that, uh, that you know, some of the studios had for, for trying to get people to come out to the theaters is, well, just let's show them their favorite stuff that they watch on TV and on the movie screens. But, you know, by the 60s, it was more of like, you know, releasing things for international audiences and, you know, different, different strategies like that that actually made them decide to, to turn episodes into movies. The Man From U.N.C.L.E. movies, the first couple were actually edited from single episodes where they actually shot new footage to, to bring them up to, to feature length. After the first two, they combined, you know, double episodes and didn't have to change a whole lot. They just, you know, edited the, the double episodes together into, into movie length. But the, uh, the first two films that came out in 64 and 65, To Trap a Spy and The Spy With My Face, you know, basically half the original ep- episode and half newly shot footage, which they then, you know, this newly shot footage, they went and wrote future episodes of the show around so they could use it. So that's also kind of interesting. But but yeah, starting with uh, To Trap a Spy, Pilot episode of *The Man from Uncle* uh, called *The Vulcan Affair*, and uh, and then added this footage of uh, Luciana Paluzzi, a Cinema '60 favorite. She was in, she was the bad girl in *Thunderball*, and uh, she was in one of the OSS 117 movies and *Green Slime* and *Muscle Beach Party*. She's she's great. She's I always like to see her, but her. This, the footage of her that they added to the pilot episode was completely unnecessary. Like it kind of it took this the story of you know Uncle finds out that this African leader is going to be assassinated, and they buy this factory owner. So Napoleon Solo recruits this housewife who used to be the girlfriend of this guy Vulcan Andrew Vulcan uh, in college. To, uh, to try and, like, find out information from him because he doesn't, like, now he's just so obsessed with his work that he doesn't have any, any close relatives or, or a wife or anything to, you know, to, to get information out of him. So, uh, so she, she, you know, she, Napoleon gives her this false identity. She's a rich widow, and, and so she goes to the, this party and strikes up a relationship with, with Vulcan to find out why and when and how He's going to assassinate this African leader. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it follows a pretty standard Bond storyline, but the whole Luciana Paluzzi aspect of it is just like she shows up. Napoleon Solo follows her home because he thinks she looks suspicious and she tries to get him killed. And I, I mean, it's just, it's very awkwardly edited into the pilot episode. Thankfully, after the first couple, there's there's less of that. But in this first episode, in this first film, I'm going to keep calling these films episodes because they they feel like TV to me. They don't feel like movies at all. 
Um, but the, the, yeah, this they is are Bart movies. at his snobbiest. Bart will <laughs> not recognize these as movies strictly because he doesn't like how these guys do their job and he wants to fire them. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm glad that uh, that Uncle is a fictional agency because they really just are not very good <laughs> at uh, at stopping bad guys. But yeah, I I mean that's I don't have much more to say about this movie other than as much as I like Luciana Paluzzi, <laughs> she should have never been edited into this movie. I you know this movie here's there is a problem with all of these and that is that they are for the most part too long. <laughs> Like this one, you cut a half hour out of it, it would be really slick. And then it's like, oh, wait, what would that be? Oh, the episode. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Otherwise, it just it plays off as like just setting up the the concept and it sets up really the, the opening credits <laughs> of Man from Uncle, which is Napoleon stepping out, a guy trying to shoot him, getting a sheet of glass in front of him, bulletproof glass, and then Napoleon steps around the glass and shoots the guy. Which is the opening, the, the long opening for the first season, two seasons of the show. So that's that's like what happens in this. <laughs> Except, I mean, the whole point of this secret hideout is that nobody's supposed to know where it is. And it's like, you know, there's all the security so people can't get in. But the very first scene and the very first episode of this series are two thrush agents infiltrating the headquarters. So it's... Like right from the get go, we feel like they're this this whole secret headquarters thing is absurd and pointless. Well, maybe if you're cynical and have no joy in your life, but for <laughs> me, Thrush is meant to be. They're meant to be like an elite group. They're meant to be basically people who are also hyper intelligent, but just hate humanity and just want to like have. They're they're all psychopaths basically. They they don't think that people are worth anything, and they're happy to squash as many dots on the Ferris wheel as they have to in order to gain what, what they believe is rightfully theirs. We so, should be saying wasp anyway, not thrush, because you can see it's very <laughs> clearly dubbed into the movie where every time somebody says thrush, they overdub the word wasp. Well, I feel the same way about wasps and, <laughs> and how they feel about humanity, so it, it does work. You know, so you, you presume this is, this is a once-in-a-lifetime, oh, this is the first time this happened, is what I presumed, at least in good faith. <laughs> <laughs> I have no good faith with bootleg Bond. Well, I thought it was fine. Oh, well, we also forgot to mention that in uh, To Trap a Spy, uh, there is no Mr. Waverly, you know, the, the famous number one of the uncle agency played by Leo G. Carroll, Alexander Waverly, is not in the first episode or movie. It's uh, Mr. Allison played by Will Kuluva, uh, who is immediately replaced, I guess, after this. After Elia and Napoleon, there's only one other major character, recurring character in the series, and that's that's Mr. Waverly, who's the you know basically the M of uh, of this of Uncle, and uh, yeah, I just thought it was worth mentioning that he is not in the first episode, and and uh, Elia hardly has a role at all. Like he shows up in one scene, and that's it. He just has a few lines, and it's not until the next episode that he actually plays an important kind of role or the next film anyway yeah well the next film the spy with my face which came out in 1965 
directed by John Newland is way more fun, actually. Agreed. Thrush has learned about this August affair that was all the buzz in the criminal underworld, this secret thing that uncle is up to. So what they do is they plastic surgery this guy to look like Napoleon Solo so he can infiltrate uncle and find out what this whole uh, August affair deal is. Uh, and uh, turns out it's this uh, crazy machine for battling aliens if we get invaded. So that's cool. It was nice to have a little fi with our spy fi. A little sci-fi with our spy fi. A little... S- <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> Which means that Bill Gunn, Uncle Agent Number Three, he's a director and star of Ganja and Hess and famous famous independent film director shows up in a small role in here and he he gets uh, sucked into this uh, this alien battling device and s- spins around and there's a lot of flashing lights and uh, it's almost worth watching for for that scene alone. That scene owns the whole like this whole episode is sort of I mean, I like all of the plastic surgery stuff, which is fairly clever. There's a there's a great scene on an airplane where this double is trying to swap out the suitcase that he's meant to be. It's like chained to him. He's meant to be caring for uncle because they've kidnapped Napoleon. And so this double Napoleon is trying to figure this out. And meanwhile, the flight attendant had been dating Napoleon and they went go through a bad breakup in the beginning of the uh, episode or this movie. Damn it! Now I'm doing it. <laughs> and she ends up on this flight and starts to sort of passive aggressively, you know, speak to him. And he does. He acts like he doesn't know who she is because he doesn't because he's the double. And she just gets angrier and angrier. So there's this good little like swap out of how to how to figure out how to swap this case. Uh, and get the the contents on inside of it and on top of the fact that this woman is like just she's doing the best thing in the world which is just plotting to just humiliate and destroy him in front of all of his business partners mm-hmm. <laughs> loved it yeah sandy is the uh, is the innocent in this one and she's not recruited by which is how i remembered a lot of the episodes going like i i feel like the way that the housewife elaine was uh, was recruited in to trap a spy. The first movie is kind of how I remember a lot of the episodes going, but it turns out in the rest of these movies, it's mostly just the innocent has, you know, happens to be in the wrong place at the wrong time, or you know, is the relative of somebody who wants to find out what happened to this person, or the the innocent comes, uh, you know, gets dragged into these episodes in in, uh, in a lot of different ways, and and to have be the current girlfriend the or recently ex-girlfriend of uh, of Napoleon solo you know constantly uh you know calling him out on what a sleazeball he is was was kind of fun I like that aspect of it yeah all of this going sort of normally with you know your basic spy who stole your face situation happening it then takes that it veers off course completely when they have to show up and, and you realize this case is is a piece that works for like anti-alien tractor beam technology <laughs> freaking amazing and then there's like this mysterious box that glows and if anyone looks into it they just get pulled in and die i mean like what the hell it's perfect loved it classic shit this was one of the better ones for sure i mean by better i i mean i wasn't quite as bored by this one as 
I was by the rest. I'll rank these at the end for you. Don't don't worry. I've I've got a list, but usually that's what better means for me. Is I didn't have trouble sitting through it. It's also Senta Burger is in there. She's the the thrush, the main thrush villain in this, and uh, we know her from uh, the third Matt Helm movie, The Ambushers. We also have Donna Michelle, Playboy centerfold, who was uh, Warren Beatty's girlfriend at the beginning of Mickey One, and she shows up in several different roles in these movies that we watched. She's the masseuse in this one, and I think she's in the next one. But uh, yeah, I mean, part of the fun of these episodes, these movies, is to see these up-and-coming starlets in in early roles and to and also aging starlets. They seem to drag in a lot of female stars who were big in their day in the 50s you know 10 years ago they were huge but they uh but now the best they can get is uh, is the villainous and, and man from uncle so it's I, I think star watching is what I got the most pleasure out of there's a lot of great cameos in man from uncle throughout the whole show it, and that's part of what makes it such a fun show besides just seeing their faces like they bring a level of quality to a role that doesn't really necessitate it. And it ends up making the show all the better for it. And I think, you know, Robert Vaughn's a good actor in general, you know, and, and David McCallum for, for being a, you know, a stilted nerd is the character. He does a great job. <laughs> <laughs> it reminds me of Columbo in that way. You know, it's like, it, you, you know, the formula, you don't really, you're, there's no, no surprises so much, but you just want to see that cameo and see what they do with the role and see if they can sell it. Besides from the world of Bond, I'm pretty sure, um, William Shatner and a lot of who's who of 60s television and screen appeared or even um, some of the writers, you know, I think Harlan Ellison wrote scripts for the show eventually. So, yeah, it's it's like, you know, it's really a cultural touchstone in that way, especially this, the female stars. It's fun to watch for them, The Like, it se- seems like there's nothing but middle aged, bland white men in most of the roles in this in these movies but uh but then they always managed to get some interesting female star who's either like i said up and coming or sort of aging out of being a, a movie star i guess that's another way where these shows these uh these movies are uh, a little more female centric than bond just in the casting the, the special guests should we mention the blow up clown <laughs> or should we just throw yeah. that out there and just move on to the next film? Yeah, Let, let's leave it at that. The third film was One Spy Too Many. Joseph Sargent was the director who actually went on to do some pretty iconic 70s movies, uh, Taking of Pelham 123, and uh, and I know White Lightning. I know you like the Gator movies. I likes a strong word. <laughs> but uh, actually, he he did a couple of these movies, and they actually happen to be a couple of the better ones. This is actually my favorite of, of all of these movies, One Spy Too Many based on the two-parter uh, Alexander the Greater Affair. The best part is that Rip Torn is Alexander, who thinks he's the reincarnation of Alexander the Great, so he wants to take over the world by 
I think it's it's a it's another gas in this one. Like this gas. Yeah, it induces passiveness. Right. So yeah, the soldiers can come in and and no nobody will even put up a fight. So he'll take over the world that way. And yeah, I, I just thought this was really entertaining, really solidly put together. It just keeps getting more and more ridiculous in the best way. And I think that's really the biggest pleasure I get from these Bond ripoff movies is if it can keep topping itself in its ridiculousness. This is the the one of these uncle movies where it, it, it just, it manages to do that. It, it never loses momentum. There's actually the, a, a subplot in this one where uh, they pulled in Yvonne Craig, who's best known as Batgirl from the Batman series. And that one stint in one Elvis movie. <laughs> <laughs> she was in one of them, I know. Yeah, really briefly. Mm. Well, she's got that squeaky voice, so she's hard to she's hard to miss, but uh but yeah, she's kind of awkwardly edited into this movie as What is it that they say whenever they want to open a communication line with Uncle open open control alt control escape delete <laughs> control D Open channel D. Yeah. So every time uh, a few, uh, the uncle agent is out in the field and they want to communicate with, with headquarters, they, uh, they got this little pen microphone, cell phone type thing where they say uh, open channel D and that connects them with the switchboard operator at uncle headquarters. And Yvonne Craig plays that role in this episode and is, just has this thing where she keeps telling Napoleon Solo, oh, I hope you didn't forget about that date that we have this weekend. And uh, and he has always forgotten and tries to play it off like he hasn't forgotten. It's a pretty lame gag. And I actually uh, thought it was brilliant because you realize later <laughs> on that he never made any of these plans and she's just playing off of his insecurities to get a date with him. And I was like, awesome. <laughs> All I'm right. Gonna start, well. I'm going to start manipulating <laughs> people like that. Like, hey, Bart, you remember when you said you were going to give me 500 bucks? Uh, yeah, let me ch let me check my notes on that. <laughs> well, anyway, Rip Torn's a lot of fun as this criminal mastermind who thinks he's so much smarter than everybody else. He wants to break every commandment. So through, scattered throughout this movie, you just see these numerals on the wall. Like like there's a, a, a number seven over the bed in some you know, bedroom because he, you know, coveted his neighbor's wife in that bed at some point. And, uh, and so that's a, that's a fun thing that sort of keeps you progressing through the film. I, I mean, I think that's part of it. Most of these don't have anything. They set up the plot. Napoleon and Ilya just, you know, rush into the situation, not knowing what they're doing. They get captured and there's just not a whole lot of forward momentum with these things. And I think that, that this one actually has like, it builds and then builds and builds. And, and I wish more of these movies had that kind of structure where it, it isn't just like, well, then this happened, then this happened, then this happened. This had, you know, this was kind of like paced out and you sort of, this happened because this happened because this happened. That's what makes a lot of these Bond sort of things boring to me is that there's no cause and effect. It's just stuff happening. And this this one has some cause and effect. Donna Michelle is in this one. She's Princess Nicole, married to James Hong, who's Prince Fanong. And uh, they're just guests at, at Alexander's party that uh, that Napoleon and Ilya infiltrate. Yeah. You you haven't said, uh, are you going to wait till the end to, to express your preferences for these films? 
Oh, I like this one a lot. I'm with you. I mean, it, it, it when they're written well, they really shine. Because again, I think all the characters are great. They're really fun. And, and the more you watch it, the more fun the characters are because you sort of know how they're going to react and you know what's going to happen. Uh, but yeah, I mean, they, they do get stagnant. And, and again, just the, the length of these movies is, is the hardest part because when it's an hour, it's much, it's much easier. <laughs> but um, this one was great because of, uh, yeah, as you said, all the wacky stuff. Like I love the human chessboard that that ends up happening with this passive gas this passive inducing gas and then it gets like there's like a car chase shootout and and then it goes full on like indiana jones secret tomb and Mm -hmm. uh you know they end up in this like ancient tomb they have to figure out all the walls move if you step on the wrong place and you have to solve the riddle and you know there's a lot of betrayals and twists and turns and things like that and uh yeah i love i love rip torn as this like totally wacky dude that just <laughs> like wants to be alexander the great or whatever and or, or no he sa- doesn't he say he wants to be alexander the greater or something like it gets it gets pretty corny and like in campy in a really fun way yeah probably i mean that's the name of the episode and then there's like Ilya uh, and this woman that they're hanging like it's always these like really complex contraptions where like they're hanging them over a bottomless pit. They're going to light the rope on fire. Like, as you said, no one can kill anyone. Like, it has to be this like, like, what's the most difficult way that, that we give them the most conceivable time to remove themselves from this situation kind of stuff. Dorothy Provine is uh, is the innocent in this one. She's the the wannabe ex-wife of uh, Alexander. So she gets dragged into this plot because she's trying to get him to sign this settlement where her, her family has inadvertently funded all of Alexander's awful schemes. She wants to divorce him and get the money back that she, you know, the million dollars that uh, that she took from her family. So, and she's, uh, you know, she's kind of fun and bubbly in this. There's an evil beauty spa. There's there's <laughs> evil farmers who try to run Ilya over with a tractor and then Ilya has to like he jumps in mud and then he gets cleaned up and he gets like wrapped in wire and experimented on in his underwear. You know, unless I've made a note, a specific note on some of these things, I remember all everything you're talking about, but I cannot remember which movie it happens in. <laughs> <laughs> They're so interchangeable. I'm, I actually agree with you. I if, if I didn't have notes that told me specifically it was this film, I would not have remembered. Especially because, I mean, this one, it goes through so many different settings way more than it normally does. And it's less, like, themed. It's more about chasing these crazy people. So it gets, it's a little bit. I mean, un- Uncle's very useless in this. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's... Uh, that. Almost all of the episodes, it's usually Thrush defeating itself. Like, that uncle has very little to do with the resolution. Like, these megalomaniacs just go too far and end up sabotaging themselves. And uncle just happens to be there when it happens. In, in my opinion, the, the best of these movies is followed up by the absolute worst. One of our spies is missing. <laughs> Yeah, 
Yeah, because this one, Ilya just spends the first solid hour of this film chasing cats around. <laughs> Literally, that's all he's doing. He's just letting a cat go with a GPS chip and then chasing it. Yeah, because somebody is stealing cats to do research because uh, cat's nervous system is closest to human nervous system. So they have created this anti-aging or reverse aging technology based on this cat research, obviously. Yeah, and he gets shot. Like, Ilya gets shot just because he's chasing cats, and he has to go to the hospital for, like, a week, and then he just goes back to chasing cats. <laughs> yeah, until Napoleon, like, three-quarters of the way through this movie, happens to find him in one of the cat houses. A lot of this movie takes place in the fashion world. The villains are actually a bunch of women. Like, I mean, I guess they're Thrush. These all, I think Thrush is is the evil organization in all of these movies. But this particular division of Thrush is woman is a fashion designer and uh, in London. So I guess it's probably, this is 66. So it's definitely capitalizing on the whole swinging London thing. You know, she's got her lesbian, middle-aged lesbian uh, hitman who goes, Olga, who goes around killing people. Yeah, there's actually particularly upsetting death in this one. Uh, Lorelai Lancer is the daughter of, somebody who goes missing at some point and uh, Napoleon goes to talk to her to find out what, what the deal is with her father. And she's like murdered and, and by one of the, the models um, who's, who's working for this agency. And, and she's, you know, you see her drowned in the bathtub with her eyes wide open. So all of these movies are pretty, you know, safe for television or like sixties television level of, of adult content. I mean, some of them have a little bit of extra female bare backs thrown in just to give them a little spice that I think were, was edited out for the, the TV versions. But basically, these are very mild versions of James Bond in terms of the sex and violence. But I, I thought that this death was particularly upsetting, like seemed a little little off or how mild these things are in general. Yeah, actually, you know, there are a lot of deaths in general in Man From U.N.C.L.E. and you don't notice them because they get treated so casually. Like <laughs> the the spy with my face, like he every single time someone even vaguely considers maybe this isn't Napoleon and maybe this is someone impersonating him. Like if they even like look at him a little funny, he kills them. <laughs> and it's like, well, now <laughs> everyone's going to know because everyone keeps dropping like flies when they hang out with Napoleon. So it's like. People don't get karate chopped on the neck and then fall down the way that they do in like Matt Helm or whatever. Like people just get shot and then they move on. <laughs> well, in theory, although it's never explicitly mentioned, Napoleon's gun shoots sleep darts, not bullets. Like we don't know that these people aren't dying, but that's like there's Uncle Gun, the man from Uncle Gun. There's this really famous like pistol that you could turn into a, a rifle and... At the at the peak of uh, of Uncle Mania, the the gun was getting as many fan mail letters as as Robert Vaughn and David McCallum were. But you know, for such a famous gun, you probably if you know anything about the man from Uncle, you can probably picture this very distinctive gun with all these different attachments that Napoleon uses all the time. And it's not featured very prominently in any of these movies, surprisingly. We're supposed to know that Napoleon isn't actually killing these people, but you'd never know it. Like, you never see these people waking up from their sleep darts. As far as we're concerned, these people are dead, and Napoleon, who shot them, like, flunky after flunky after flunky. Yeah, but this one, this movie's just boring. Like, that's my main 
problem with it. But it does have James Doohan. It does. But we've had him before, right? We haven't we haven't collected all the Star Trek characters yet in film. No, but I actually recognized him in this one. I forget what the other thing we saw him in was, but you said, oh, yeah, Scotty was in that. I, I didn't even notice. But he's got more of a major role in this. He's like the younger version of the, the old guy who's gotten the reverse aging treatment. He dies pretty quickly, but he has, you know, he's got a couple scenes where enough to stand out a little bit. I think the best part of this is when uh, Napoleon and Ilya end up in a wine making machine (laughs) yeah the whole walls are shrinking in on them gag they're gonna get crushed to death yeah as they always do they get out of it but isn't it twice like they get thrown in once and twice they have to escape from this wine vat with the where the walls are are going to crush them well they have to talk their way out of the wine vat because (laughs) that what's that lady comes and is like i'll help you but or was it a guy this is what I, this is the, this is the stuff. No, it's a guy, Jordan. Yeah, the thrush agent. Bernard Fox. Bernard Fox, yeah. Who is, oh, actually there's some weird additional stuff in this one too. Napoleon is coming back from the mansion of this guy who's disappeared, but he hasn't actually disappeared. He's just gotten a lot younger and he's now Scotty and nobody recognizes him. They've sabotaged his car and it like falls apart as he's driving it and flips over and this Jordan thrush agent played by Bernard Fox like finds him and you know does something with his cobbling thing but that has nothing to do with the rest of the movie and like all of a sudden Napoleon just shows up wherever in whatever house Elia is in and there's no mention of this car accident or it's it's where we first meet this Jordan guy so maybe they wanted to bring him in earlier so he seemed like more of an important character but it's another weird weird addition that didn't work Plus, Yvonne Craig is in this one again, playing a different character, I think, but still the telephone operator at Uncle. Well, one thing I want to mention about this episode, too, is that I love there's a scene where there's this like model daughter at the heart of this who ends up being the person who helps out Napoleon and Ilya. Well, she's just at the beginning before she gets killed. Like she sort of plays the she's sort of the more typical Bond. Well, but when she's being held hostage in her apartment. Mm-hmm. Then Napoleon ends up breaking in because he keeps trying to reach her and they won't he's she's being, you know, watched by evil model girls and he can't reach her by phone. And so uh, he ends up reaching the, the woman, the woman who's watching her, who ends up killing her like you were talking about in the bathtub. And um, once Napoleon arrives, she is trying to poison him with milk. Which, of course, is like because it's like a cat themed episode. <laughs> um, and he she pulls out a knife on him uh, and he realizes and then starts to fight her. And they straight up get into a cat fight. And it's it's like brilliant. And it's also like the beginning of them starting to use different angles. <laughs> Whereas like the first couple of movies are very stilted. It's like a camera is was placed in one spot and that was it. This gets a little more like handheld and like kind of follows the fight like blow by blow. It's kind of awesome. This is 66, which is, you know, Batman fever had just started and it's when the show started to become a lot campier. So you get, you know, Dutch angles and them actually like trying to make some visual jokes with the camera work in in ways that were happening in, in Batman. So yeah, they do get brighter. They, the, the colors pop more and it's you know a little little more fun to watch just on a visual level. 
It's more cinematic, which helps. Yeah. <laughs> because the plot certainly isn't. Actually, you know what the best part of this, that what we're sleeping on, is that swinging London theme song version of like the, the British national anthem that keeps playing. It's like full on Austin Powers. Is that this one? This one takes place in London. Yeah, but I but there's I thought it was the Terry Thomas one, the Karate Killers one. Where... It might show up in that one too. <laughs> well, it, you, you're probably right. If you made a note, there's also a scene where they mock David McCallum's real accent. Oh, really? Vaughn says something in a Scottish accent to him because they're like in the UK and all, but I didn't even think about that. Didn't, didn't pick up on that. The innocent in this one is the nurse of the uh, of the old guy who wants the the treatments real bad and elder. I don't know. I feel the need to mention who the innocent is in all of these episodes because sometimes you forget that these things are supposed to be structured around there being an innocent and they often play a real secondary role like in this one. Yeah, so we're four down, four to go. We're halfway through. <laughs> all of these sound like fun movies so far. I don't know what you're talking about. Oh. Spy in the Green Hat, which is the next movie... I thought was even weirder. (laughs) Amusing in its own way, but a really just bizarre plot. So this one's from 1967. It's directed by Joseph Sargent. I don't, it's like, how do I even start? Like on one hand, you have Jack Palance picking up like ex-Nazi scientists with Janet Lee. And and she's like amazing. Janet Lee is amazing. In this. <laughs> she, she plays like a murderous psycho and I love it. And then meanwhile, like there's this like Italian mob plot where Napoleon Solo... Because he, like, had to go into a house to hide from, like, uh, the bad guys. Like, you know, he had to go hide under this girl's bed, which, of course, is the fantasy of any anyone watching this movie, of course, if Napoleon jumps into your bedroom. But um, he has to hide under her bed and then her grandmother finds him and thinks the worst. And because they're Italian, the daughter is now ruined and so Napoleon has to marry her. And Napoleon's like, yeah, I'm not doing that and leaves. And then the mob gets on his case <laughs> and has to chase him down. This one's mostly set in Sicily. So you've got lots of Italian Catholics. I mean, all of these movies, they're set all over the world. We haven't really like talked too much about where these things are supposed to be set because you'd never know from looking at them that they're set anywhere other than Southern California. <laughs> There's very, very little to indicate what countries these episodes are set in other than there's a, a title on the screen that says Sicily. But at least this one gets an actual Italian actress to play the girl, Leticia Roman, uh, as, uh, as Pia. She's kind of a Claudia Cardinale type. I don't know if she went on to do much of anything else, but she's pretty appealing in this movie. But yeah, there are a lot of great elements in this one. You've got Jack Palance as like this sweaty, stuttering bad guy who's megalomaniac like all of them, but he's uh, he's just got so many like weird quirks that he's fun to watch. And and Janet Leigh as sadomasochist, dominatrix, killer, flunky is is a lot of fun and the and the and the mobsters are fun like it's all a lot of cool things 
in this, but it it's the plot is just there's nothing tying it together. There's no forward momentum. There, this is the one where I think they're they're trying to to create global warming so that they can take over Greenland, which will now be the the best place in the world to live because of global warming. <laughs> As you do. It also features the original Mr. Waverly, Will Kuluva, although his name wasn't Waverly in the first one. He plays the head thrush agent who comes uh, to, to Sicily and, and Jack Palance has to entertain him at a party and executing some uncle agents, I think, is part of the, the entertainment there. This movie pops. There's a lot of memorable stuff in it, but it just it doesn't hold together. <laughs> There's nothing to keep you watching it other than seeing what oddball star show up next definitely the campiest well one of the campiest of the the episodes isn't like joan blondell is like one of the wives, the mob wives uh-huh and it's like super underused and she gets a uh, a grapefruit shoved in her face <laughs> Just, i think she's in public enemy the the one where james cagney shoves a grapefruit in his girlfriend's face but she's not the one who gets the grapefruit in the face <laughs> so <laughs> I mean, the thing that was most memorable about this for me was Janet Lee has an amazing wardrobe in this. It's all like really like psychedelic 60s dresses, and I would happily wear all of them. I love how she is like totally unhinged in this and, and is just super <laughs> down for murder all the time. She tortures Ilya at one point, and it's like kind of brilliant. And then in the end, too, when she gets betrayed enough times, she, she goes after her betrayer. I won't spoil it. She goes after her betrayer <laughs> and shoots him after he shoots her. She comes back, kills him, and lives long enough to be like, it's wonderful and delicious that I got to see you die. And then she dies. And I was like, you know, good for her. And she loves the pain when she's dying. She, like, orgasms as she she dies <laughs> because she's so into the pain that she's feeling she's awesome <laughs> and then there's also like there's a bunch of really good sets uh that are just really 60s looking in in like a fun way not in like a not even a crummy way like just i really like the the like architecture and the layout of these rooms <laughs> there's all of that like my favorite color is that orange red that you see in mid-century movies that's like makes your eyes bleed and it's like the most reddest orangey red that you can't even pick one which side of the spectrum it's on that's my like favorite and that's all throughout this movie like it doesn't matter where they are like every, and in a cool way it kind of keeps the movie together because as they change different sets there's always a touch of it somewhere in the set which is kind of fun but um but yeah i mean none of that is the the plot <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I kind of enjoyed Napoleon being forced to marry this woman and being really uncomfortable about it. That was fun. You kind of imagine like Bond in that situation would be pretty amusing. I like that these old school gangsters end up being kind of the heroes too. They do far more than Uncle does to defeat the bad guys. <laughs> they <movie>. do. <laughs> and, and it's all because they're upset that, that Napoleon has, uh, has spoiled their grandniece or whatever. It doesn't Janet Lee. She ends up in a cat fight on a table where she's like whipping chains at the other girl and they're not wearing <laughs> shoes. Yeah. <laughs> right. Okay. It wasn't just my fever dream. Got it. Yeah. No, it's it's very campy, but it's just not quite enough to make the movie that watchable. Is this the one that also ends on like a high five freeze frame? <laughs> Is it? <laughs> I don't remember that, but I do want to talk about the opening credits for all of these movies. 
that are terrible, it's they usually start with some sort of like Bond, some sort of pre-credit action scene, like somebody's trying to break into something and a bunch of people get shot. But as the that like opening scene is climaxing, they start the opening credits. And then every time a credit comes on the screen, their action goes into slow motion. And it's so ugly. It's so unpleasant to watch. I mean, not only does the action become incomprehensible when it slows it down and puts words over it while it's happening, but it just looks stupid. There are one or two that that do it differently, but of the eight, at least, I think six of them use this terrible opening credit technique. And I don't like it. And the other thing, they hardly use the Man From U.N.C.L.E. theme at all. In any yes. Way. Like you get pieces of it and you never hear the like classic version of it that you hear in the opening credits on the TV show. But you get like variations on it in some of these movies. It's all Jerry Goldsmith music, I think. Maybe not. It might not even be him. Somebody could just be somebody trying to copy that style. But yeah, the, the Man From U.N.C.L.E. theme that everybody knows is hardly in any of these movies. Anyway, I, there, there was a gripe that I wanted to take care of, and this was as good a time as any. Well, how about the Karate Killers, my second favorite. I thought this was a lot of fun. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that the plot is just, you know, constantly moving forward. Like this happens because this happens because this happens. And why can't Bond movies and its ripoffs realize that this is how you make a movie engaging? Like have there be stakes, have something happen because something else has happened, not just happen randomly. Have somebody have a plan and not just, you know, rush into a situation and see what happens. This scientist is trying to do figure out something, but some he accidentally stumbles upon this way to create gold from seawater, like hyper-pressurized seawater or something. He's trying to and, have... He makes a desalination machine or something so that you can drink seawater. Oh, right. Yeah. And once when he takes the salt out of the water, the result is, like, he creates gold. So, of course, Thrush wants this technology so they can buy the world. Herbert Lom is the is the bad guy in this really you know he's the best known as uh, as Inspector Clouseau's nemesis who is uh constantly trying to kill Inspector Clouseau but he's uh he's he's a great villain and he's got this team of karate killers they've got these solid colored shirts that they wear these black vests over and just the visual of these karate killers who wear different col- depending on if they're in helicopters they're wearing blue if they're on motorcycles they're wearing red if they're on <laughs> I mean, I, I, I'm sure there's a logic to it, but uh, no matter what solid color shirts they're wearing, they, they wear these black vests over the shirt, and it's, it's great. And, uh, and they're, they're running around killing people all the time. They kill Joan Crawford, who's the, the wife of the scientist who Herbert Lom has poisoned. The shortest cameo ever. <laughs> yeah. And she doesn't interact with uncle agents at all. It's like they, you know, she showed up on set and had uh, 10 minutes to shoot her scene. And she, she gets a lot of words into her short scene. But, uh, she gets but then brutally she's, murdered for it. Yeah. Well, anyway, Uncle has to go and find 
the the scientist who who creates the uh, this uh, gold out of seawater machine uh, is dies. I I forget he why. Gets Her, yeah, I mean Herbert Lom. I think thinks he has the formula, but doesn't. And but he ends up killing the scientist anyway. But anyway, the formula is spread out among his daughters. Right. He's he's got these photos that he's given each of his four daughters. Um, and each has a piece of the formula on it, and so Uncle has to go and find each of these daughters and and put the you know pour, put the formula together. It's almost like a better version of Goldfinger because there's like a lot more globe trotting. Like every daughter is in a different country, and each has a little bit. Like each of these sections has its own little story. Like the first one in Italy, the daughter that's living in Italy is. Uh, you know, connected with the Count and Contessa Di Fanzini, played by uh, Telly Savalas and Diane McBain, and uh, and they their marriage is terrible, and they're throwing things at each other, and but they love each. You know, each each of these episodes is kind of a story unto itself. And England, there's uh, Jill Ireland is the, the daughter, and uh, she's Jill uh, Ireland who was married to David McCallum, right before Charles Bronson. Yeah, she keeps taking her clothes off in public to to cause a sensation and Terry Thomas is the constable who keeps trying to stop her and they end up getting married in the end and a Swiss Alps scene with uh, Kurt Jurgens and and then uh, finally a, a scene in Japan and it's just because you can actually there's globe trotting and you actually get a sense of where these locations are it's part of what makes it fun but the innocent in this one is actually the stepdaughter of the scientist who's killed. So she's helping out Uncle, helping them find each of his actual daughters. And she's played by Kim Darby, who you probably know as the girl in True Grit, the John Wayne version. I always thought she was kind of terrible in True Grit, but she's kind of fun and likable in this one. And she does end up saving the day more than the innocents tend to do in general. She has a pretty good role. But this one has a very different opening sequence from the rest of them. It, it's a uh, it's set in a in a teeny bopper nightclub, and there's this like psychedelic song that's played, and and th- the scene actually happens later in the movie. But they just show the credits over clips from this scene, so it doesn't make any sense. But at least it's easier to watch than the other opening credits. This one really dragged for me. Oh really? I actually had a, this one. I had a hard time. I just wouldn't. It just wouldn't end. I just the stuff in the Alps was just insufferable. Because <laughs> it's really just like this daughter that's dating an older man, who then says, "P.S. I have a wife," and she freaks out, and then she gets chased by all of these other guys who are all kind of creepers, and it like it just goes on forever. And then he's like, "Just kidding. I don't actually have a wife. I was just testing you." <laughs> <laughs> By the point where you're like, oh, my God, just move on. <laughs> Again, if they cut a half hour out of this one, it would have been pretty solid. Because I agree with you, the plot's pretty good. And I like that sort of solving this this puzzle. And, and there's all the, the last daughter who's the, the key to putting it all together. So they can get all the pieces from the other daughters, but they still need this other one to cooperate. And Napoleon does like a lot of Captain Kirk karate chops. <laughs> See, this is one that I felt like they, they jammed so much into it that it could have supported a, a longer running time. Or at least it was more satisfying because there was enough in it to carry a whole movie as opposed to the other ones. But you disagree, and that's that's fine. Oh, it was also directed by uh, Barry Shear, who directed Wild in the Streets, which we covered in our first episode. You know, it definitely has a, a young person energy to it that a lot of the others don't. You can almost 
kind of tell? There's a little bit of an auteur touch to this one, I guess. Mm, I mean, like, they they definitely lean into the, like, the stripper daughter energy. Like, she's on trial for public nudity or whatever. And they're like, what's your profession? She's like, I shake. I shake me (laughs) at the girl at Go-Go. And you're like, oh, all right. Um, yeah, they, they, I like the end, too, where they're in Japan and they're in this, like, Buddhist temple and Thrush shows up to just kill everybody. And the guy's like, this is a house of peace. You can't desecrate this place. And then they just shoot him. Yeah. <laughs> and then everyone starts, like, karate battling, like, right in the middle of this temple. And you're like, damn, that's rough. Herbert Lom is is so good as a as a monster. He's so unlikable. He's perfect. All right, 1968, we've got the Helicopter Spies. Based on The Prince of Darkness Affair, episodes one and two. This one was directed by Boris Segal, who made a few movies. Omega Man, the Charlton Heston version of I Am Legend, he did. And Girl Happy. I think you that's one of your least favorite Elvis movies. No. <laughs> it's fine. I mean, they're all bad. <laughs> and they don't blend together as much as Man from Uncle movies. <laughs> or maybe they do this one was my favorite helicopter spies was my favorite the name buries the lead because what happens in this one is that there is a, a cult a white-haired cult called the third way and it's all just based around john carradine who sits there mute in the corner and they think that when he speaks this means that like their time is now <laughs> but he never says anything we get like liquid light shows we get out. There's a garage orgy. There's a heat prism laser ray and space rockets. Like this is everything I want out of a man from Uncle. You get four identical Turkish brothers. Each of one <laughs> ends, ends up getting killed until the, the last one's left and is just there for for Carol Lindley to marry. And the thing, I mean, the, the their plot of world domination. Also, it's just so dopey. It reminded me of, of Pinky and the Brain, which was like my favorite show growing up, which, you know, pays homage to, to all of these <laughs> things. Many of the things that I ended up liking later in life. But um, the, I think it's like they want to destroy the entire world uh, so that they can leave just one island and live in in happiness or something like that. It's <laughs> Probably. It does involve a skyscraper being used as a rocket silo. The people launching the rocket are actually like sitting there in the like on the ground floor of the building right next to this rocket as it's being launched. So like 85 million degrees of rocket flame shooting out of the bottom of this thing and they're just sitting there in, in the bottom of the silo. That's uh, Well, they have special heat and... protection glass. <laughs> the best part of this really is that basically that, that uncle reaches out to a, like an ex-thrush agent or at least he's like a, a notorious criminal this guy luther sebastian he i don't think he's an ex-agent he was just a criminal that, he worked uh, with thrush or something he he's like a bad guy know. so he's not your typical he's not like like uncle has to sit there and have a conversation about 
should we, you know, ask this guy for help? But he ends up being the best guy to, to get the job done for what they want, which is to steal this heat prism laser or whatever from a religious group. And uh, he's played perfectly by Bradford Dillman. He reminded me a little bit of Bruce Campbell. <laughs> and maybe it's just because I'm thinking of like Xena, where he's like the king of prince of thieves. Yeah, he does, he does ham it up. He's actually a really good slimy bad guy. And he looked familiar to me. Bradford Dillman, the name sounds familiar too, but I can't think of anything that I have seen him in. He just does. He does a great job. And there's a whole like Mission Impossible style break into the safe in the beginning with him and Ilya while Napoleon is is there to distract and, you know, basically do nothing. <laughs> he ends up in like a well, he ends up in this room where he's being trapped by sand. Yeah. And then Ilya has to come rescue him. As usual, that that seems to happen a lot. Napoleon has gotten himself into a, a mess that he can't get out of. And Ilya just happens to he has this sixth sense that Napoleon needs some help and goes and rescues him. There's a great scene, too, where he enters this fortress where they're keeping all this stuff that they break into this safe and they, they do an x-ray scan of Napoleon and it just shows like 50 cents in his pockets and like some <laughs> fillings because <laughs> all of his weapons are like made of plastic or something. I don't know. They don't show up. I, who God knows. But yeah. And then it and then it goes on basically that Luther is part of the third way cult and betrays uncle and then they have to go chase after him. But it was it was all like the pacing in this was perfect. For me, like it kept moving. Mm -hmm. I love this crazy cult. Love them. That there's a scene where they're trying to reward all of the henchmen with like a par like party girls in this garage, which is that like orgy scene. And and Napoleon has he's sprayed his hair white so that he fits in with everyone because they all have white hair. And this woman keeps trying to make out with him. He keeps trying to to walk away from her because he's trying to get spy information. And then finally she gets close enough that she, oh, she sprays champagne all over him and his hair <laughs> melts off of his face. And then she's like, you know, alert, alert. And then suddenly Luther, need, not needing any of these guys anymore, just hits the button and sets poisonous gas on all of them and just kills everyone in the room. <laughs> it's like this just like crazy evil stuff that's just so silly and ridiculous. Like it was, it was great. Yeah, I would I would never apply for a job as a flunky for an evil mastermind. <laughs> yeah, they just don't care. It's a really thankless job. It doesn't even say, say like when he presses the the button, he's like, you know, goodbye and keep the faith or something. <laughs> yeah, hard to survive in that job. This is the movie that really, to me, felt like two episodes sewn together. Like the first half of this movie is all of them in the desert trying to steal the the thermal prism from this guy who has it. And then the second half is all the like cult stuff, shoot the rocket into space. Like they're the two halves are connected because of Luther Sebastian and this thermal prism, but that's part of what bugged me about this one. It seemed the least like a movie just because it's two very different halves. One half is one thing, the other half is another. And they didn't go together very seamlessly. I don't know, man. You have Lola Albright as Azalea, and she's amazing. She gets to give this great, crazy speech in front of Liquid Light with all of these women dancing in robes next to her. <laughs> and she's talking about, like, the third way and, like, we'll become our best selves. And it's, like, really psychedelic drug style. And then you have Julie London, who plays Luther Sebastian's 
ex-wife, the bored housewife of a criminal mastermind. <laughs> and she spends all day just smoking in bed with like a hot, like a hot younger guy. And that's it. <laughs> different, different hot younger yes. guys, shirtless guys. She's always got a different hot shirtless guy in her bed. It was amazing. This was her final film appearance. She retired after this. Well, she retired from acting after this. I don't know if she still had a music career afterwards, but I did look up her uh, her film credits, and this is the last we ever see of, of Ms. Julie London. This was my favorite one. I just want more. I want more psychedelic <laughs> cults. That's just all I want. I absolutely understand why you like this one a lot, but it was hard to get through for me. I was I was just a little bored by it. Not enough to it. Well, then we end on a, I think, even more mediocre film. <laughs> yeah, this is arguably the worst. No, the cat one is definitely the worst one. Yeah. But How to Steal the World, the, the final uncle film that's the final two-part episodes of the series uh, joined together. The Seven Wonders of the World Affair, which describes how these seven bad guys who call themselves the Seven Wonders because they're going to gas everybody else in the world and make them compliant, completely malleable. They only do what they're instructed to do once they're, they've been given this gas and see seven people who, who get to uh, rule the world and, and tell everybody what to do. But it's being done for altruistic reasons because the, the main bad guy, this Robert Kingsley, played by Barry Sullivan, is an ex-uncle agent who is tired of having to defeat these bad guys all the time who are just, you know, doing evil things and, you know, all these wars and all this all this crime and all the murder and, you know, everything, all the horrible things that humanity does to each other. He's going to put an end to this by just spraying everybody with gas and turning them into, like, robots who only do what they're commanded to do. So, I mean, as far as that goes, it's a little bit, of a change of pace from the others. I mean, Thrush is still there. Thrush is, has this plan to uh, you know, step in at the end right before Kingsley completes his plan and, and take it over from him so they can actually use this gas for nefarious purposes. But yeah, the main bad guy here is doing bad because he thinks he's doing good. That's, that's hardly enough to make this movie interesting <laughs> i mean this one also it, it has like there's a couple of really fun aspects of this movie as far as just visually you start off with like a pretty solid car chase that puts you right in it's like shot in the front seat of the car like the camera stuff is actually really interesting in this one they make a, a real effort napoleon is in a plane crash and he has to wander around the desert which is like super clearly vasquez rocks in California, which is where, you know, Star, Star Trek is constantly <laughs> over there, too. So he's wandering around the desert and he's like holding the camera. So you get this like basically like up his nose shot of him, like totally delirious and not sure where he is, which uh, I thought was great. Um, and then he stumbles into this like utopian lush city in the desert, which, of course, is their, their evil headquarters. And it kind of reminded me of The Prisoner. You also didn't mention that this desert is apparently in the middle of the Himalayas. 
Because, yeah, there's a huge desert hundreds of miles from the Gobi Desert, uh, just right there in the middle of the Himalayas. Well, Bart, have you anyway, ever been there? <laughs> I haven't been there. Maybe so there, how do you know? Maybe there is. Maybe there is. I could be wrong. But, yeah, everyone has white robes again. Uh, we get, like, there's a dude gets trapped in a glass cage of emotion and dies. It's, like, <laughs> it's actually kind of the best death because this they, they push this guy in, the door closes, and he's screaming for help for a really long time. And all these oh, guys he's just... not just some guy. He's not just some guy. He's Leslie Nielsen. <laughs> yeah. I can't, I can't let you go on without letting people know that the guy who gets shoved into the gas chamber is Leslie Nielsen, who's the general Harmon, who... Uh, is uh, in charge of security for for Kingsley. Anyway, but he is the best part of this. The, well, it's movie. just that he, everyone he's sitting there saying like like help me out, help me out, and everyone's like, uh, I don't, I don't know, man. Like we didn't we didn't build a stop button, so uh, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what to tell you. Yeah. They also run around LAX very very clearly. Like the, they they shot half of this in like the the terminal at LAX because it looks super like sixties futuristic. Yeah, but it's not supposed to be an airport. It's supposed to be, you know, the criminal mastermind headquarters. Yeah, you don't see you don't see any planes or anything. But like it, it's you're like, oh, that's LAX. Because <laughs> when you're actually in an airport in any of these Uncle movies, no matter where you are in the world, it is exactly the same one room with a few chairs in it. Did you <laughs> did you notice that the the airport? terminals in in all of these movies no it's it's ridiculous it's it's always the same airport terminal no matter where where in the world it is and it doesn't look anything like it's just clearly a, a studio set anyway i don't know this one it has good moments there's actually one line made me really laugh out loud it that wasn't meant to but it's robert vaughn mispronouncing the word robot <laughs> i uh yeah i rewound that and played that for my wife i yeah i recorded it <laughs> I like put it on Instagram. I was like, "This everyone needs to see this." Robot. <laughs> <laughs> Which you know, it's a, in his defense, that wasn't a word people were really tossing around as much, I guess, as we do nowadays. I don't know. There's so little to say about this one, and it should be like the big grand finale, like the the summation of everything that the man from Uncle has to say. But it's just kind of. Just kind of fizzles out. It's a really negative one, too. Like, it gets really, you know, it's all about just how humanity is dirt and the human race is terrible. There's this little plot about, you know, this these two young star-crossed lovers whose both of their parents are, like, evil scientists. <laughs> <laughs> and one of them dies. And then he's like, oh, I wish it was me, you know, like, because he thinks, like, because the girlfriend's father killed his father, he doesn't want to date her anymore. And... <laughs> Fair enough. And she freaks out about that and is like, no, I wish I could have died. And they end up somehow salvaging that relationship. And you're like, all right, <laughs> sure. What I liked about this movie was that a good solid like 20 minutes of it is set in this thrush headquarters office. The wife of Robert Kingsley, who is the ex-uncle agent who's trying to use this gas for good, she has betrayed him. One of many wives who betray their their husbands in, in these movies, by the way. But she's betrayed him to Thrush so that she and Mr. Webb, who's the current head of Thrush or whatever, um, can, can take over the world with this stuff. But so much of this movie is the two of them, Mrs. Kingsley and Mr. Webb, in Mr. Webb's office, just like giving sultry looks at each other to make it clear that every time the camera cuts away, they're 
having sex on on his settee or or whatever. And she's she's played by Eleanor Parker, who's a pretty big deal uh, in the '40s and '50s. And so she was heading towards the end of her career, still sexy, but an, an older lady. And and there's so much of her just like sexing up the camera, giving seductive looks to uh, Mr. Webb in in the first person camera shots and. Uh, it's uh, it's pretty amusing, and of course the lens is kind of uh, you know vaselined up because she's aging a bit, so that you know makes her makes her look a little younger. And I laughed every time it went back to this office, and it was just the two of them, clearly postcoital, <laughs> very <laughs> eminently precoital. Well, I still like Man from Uncle, so I want to ask you now, having watched these movies, we number one, we we got to rank them. So let's get your ranking right out of the way right now. I mean, I can run down the lists, but these movie titles are so generic that it's hard to connect which title belongs to which movie. But number one, One Spy Too Many. Number two, Karate Killers. Number three, The Spy With My Face. Number four, The Spy in the Green Hat. Five, The Helicopter Spies. Six, To Trap a Spy. Seven, How to Steal the World. And eight, One of Our Spies is Missing. Okay, I'm going to give you mine, which is which is surprisingly different. Because one is the helicopter spies, two is the spy with my face, three is one spy too many, four is the spy in the green hat, five is the karate killers, six is how to steal the world, seven is to trap a spy, and eight, one of our spies is missing. At least we, we agree on that one. But they're not that far off. It's just the karate killers we, and, uh, and helicopter spies seem to have swapped places for us, basically. Here's what I want to I wanna ask now. Do you think that Man from Uncle is really a bootleg Bond, or or is it its own thing? And and obviously, like you know, it's it's influenced. And for me, like I kind of actually think that in general, these movies aside, I think that it kind of stands apart because it did manage to find its own groove, and it did manage to really build upon the world of Bond. When Bond needed to exist for this movie to have been pitched, so like obviously it owes Bond that much, but. I think it manages to really become its own thing in a really fun way that is for me more is, is better than bond. The movies aren't better than bond, but the concept and, and the show and, and the characters are way more fun. I agree in terms of tone. They're very different from bond and the characters are much more likable than, than James Bond is. And that the, the partnership between Solo and Kuryakin is a lot of fun, just watching them work together. And that's something that Bond never has. Like, he is always Solo. And the fact that he's a creep just gives you nobody to root for in the Bond movies. So you're always rooting for these guys in, in Man from Uncle in a way that you're not for Bond, I guess. But also, but in terms of like evil plots and just how the storylines run, they're very Bondish. Like they never manage to stray from Bond too much in terms of storyline. Like it, they, it works in this whole idea of an innocent into a lot of the the plots, but it doesn't have a huge effect on the stories themselves. I, it's it's sort of a, a more kid-friendly Bond and, and more likable in that respect, I guess. And it, it did kind of become its own thing. I just, like, I would much rather hang out in the world of Man from Uncle than the world of James Bond. 
which I think is worth something because I feel like all these other bootleg bonds that we've been doing so far, I mean, at least in comparison to like Matt Helm and Derek Flint, who are really like full on ripoffs, like this kind of builds something that I think is more unique and more fun. And I guess in the end, I just, I would encourage people to, you could maybe watch one or two of these movies if you just want to get a sense of it, but like you're better off watching the show. Yeah, it did make me want to watch the show just to get more of what Napoleon and Ilya are doing in their off hours a little bit. I mean, you get some of that. The first two movies actually have a bit more of that. You get to see their private lives a little bit. But I think that's what got cut out of the uh, the later movies when they yeah. join them together is you never, it's all just plot, plot, plot. You're, you just are completely focused on what the bad guys are trying to do and how uncle is trying to defeat them. That's, that's really why these movies don't work. You've got these likable spies who you never see. You rarely see outside of them just doing their job. So they don't get much of a chance to, you know, just be themselves to like, you know, you don't get to hang out with them much. So I, I think in that respect, not having seen the TV show in 40 years, I'm, I'm still ready to willing to to bet that that's the better way to experience this show yeah i think that's really for me what it goes to show is just unfortunately these movies showcase the best of television because it just shows you how much better these would all be if they were short like an hour (laughs) (laughs) you know and like leaving in the stuff yeah leaving in the downtime like not worrying about the plot which is something i think a lot of the crummier 60s films do anyhow it's like they they don't know how to pace for anything other than this happens and this happens and this happens and and not like as you were mentioning it's not because this happened and then this happens because of that which is which is a way better formula for television movies or anything else but at the end of the day i still love man from uncle and watching all these movies really made me want to go back and and finish up the series because it's been way too long since i was watching those episodes yeah well you finish it up and you you let me know because I'm I'm done. I'm done with Bond bootlegs. <laughs> I say this every time, but can this can this please be our last? <laughs> Hell no. Look at this look at this decade, man. This was Bond City. Can't ignore it. This man from Uncle Alone helped create that because of the craziness that, that went behind all, everyone loving it so much. We can't ignore it. Now it's gonna be man from uncle bootlegs. Well, but what about Westerns? We love Westerns, and there's so much happening in Westerns. Spaghetti Westerns, TV Westerns, uh, you know, American Westerns evolving in the 60s. Like, let's, can't we obsessively watch those? Because we're fans. I mean, I'm sure any any other podcast that is dealing with, with spy movies from the 60s, if any others exist, they're doing it out of love. But I feel like this is... I'm definitely not coming from a place of love with these things. So <laughs> maybe that's why we're doing this. Maybe I'm a thrush agent and I enjoy watching you suffer. Who wants to tune in to some guy complaining about Euro spy movies all the time? Look, someone's got to watch him. Yeah. Well, here's the deal. I've, I've made a list of uh, sports movies from the 60s. I have no. three, three lists, three no. lists of sports movies no. from the 60s. If you make me do another one of these Bond movies, we are absolutely going to get started on those sports movie lists that I've made. Uh, (laughs) We're doing another Bond. All right. (laughs) 
<laughs> Stay tuned for the next episode where we uh, are going to watch movies about football and auto racing and basketball and baseball and all of your favorite sports. Uh, auto racing's okay. <laughs> <laughs> You've been listening to Cinema 60 with Bart DeLauro and Jenna Ipcar. The theme song is Io la conosceva bene by Piero Piccioni. The closing theme is Go Go Gorilla by The Ideals. Check out cinema60.com for new episodes and supplemental material. That's cinema-60.com. And follow the show on Twitter and Facebook at Cinema 60 Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.